everyone, and welcome to Sinful Sarah's Horror Menagerie. I'm your host, Sarah Sin, tackling horror movies, peeling back the layers, and taking a deeper dive into them. Again on the show, I don't just discuss my love of horror movies. I like to bring in the aspect and perspective of horror history, how horror movies tend to reflect society's fears. And since I am a psychology major, I like to bring this aspect and perspective in as well and see how the horror movie I'm focusing on reflects psychology and mental health in any way. So for this weekend, I'm kind of doing something just slightly different. It's not completely different, just a little different. So normally I record on Saturdays and upload on Sundays. I keep this routine. It makes things easier on me. So record Saturdays, upload Sundays. But this weekend, it's the end of April and the beginning of May. So I'm recording in April, but we'll be uploading, you know, the episode May 1st. So I kept thinking, do I continue April's theme or do I start on May's theme? And I have OCD, so it's like I have to do things a certain way. I, there's really no if ands, or buts around it. So with it being April and May, I decided I was going to combine the themes together for this show. I'm covering a movie that still blurs the lines between what is real and what is fantasy, but the movie also fits into May's theme because for May, I'll be focusing on movies starring the amazing, beautiful, and talented scream queen, Linnea Quigley. Since her birthday is in May, I decided to dedicate this entire month to her and focus on her movies. It's basically my Linnea Quigley Appreciation Month for May. So, and I'll think of a good theme for that. I, I don't think I'm just going to call it Linnea Quigley Appreciation Month. I'll probably think of something else. Hopefully, I'll think of something else by uh, next weekend. So, that's what I'm going to do for this show is pick a movie that stars Linnea Quigley because that's my focus for May, but also blurs the lines between reality and fantasy. So that's what I'm doing for this episode. Um, another thing I wanted to say really quickly is that I wanted to just talk a little bit about my mother. She's basically the reason why I am the horror fan I am today. You know, I watched horror movies with my mother she would read me Stephen King books and tell me horror movies as bedtime stories because I always wanted a scary story. I would say, Mommy, tell me a scary story. Tell me a scary story. And she did. You know, she told me that she would go to the drive-in with her dad and watch scary movies. Then I started watching them with my mom. And now my daughter likes to watch horror movies with me. And the reason why I wanted to mention this just really quickly is because, well, today is April 30th. Tomorrow's May 1st. And tomorrow will be four years since she passed. So my mother sadly passed away of cancer four years ago. And some days it feels like yesterday and some days are a little easier. So some days are better than others, you know, and I always think that if she was still here, we'd probably be doing this podcast together, you know, but like I said, I sadly lost my mother to cancer four years ago. Um, and I really miss her. Like I really do miss her. <laughs> so much every single day. And this week, this past week is one of the hardest weeks for me because basically on the 25th of April, we were told she only had a few days left and then she died May 1st. So basically it was the weight gain for a week. We just sat there and basically waited for my mother to die. And it was five days of hell. It really was. Um, so this past week has been rough and not only because it's the week that leads up to the death of my mother, but it's also been a rough week at work and I have some things I might have to decide to do that are going to be hard for me, but 
something happened yesterday actually at work that I'm not really happy about. And I need to decide if I still want to work there now because I'm not, I can't work in a place if I don't trust people. So not only was this one of the hardest weeks of my life where it leads up, like I said, to the death of my mother, I also had to deal with a lot of bullshit at work. Bullshit I didn't have to deal with and bullshit that like makes me think, is this job really worth it anymore? So I just wanted to say that really quick about my mother because she's the reason I'm the horror fan I am today. If it wasn't for her, I don't think I would be doing this podcast. I'd be watching horror movies and that I'd be part of this wonderful horror community or be part of the you know mutant fam. And I wouldn't be doing all the things I'm doing that involve horror movies if it wasn't for her. So she's the reason. So I just want to say I love you, mom. And I miss you. And I wish you were here some days. Like I said, some days are harder than others. So anyways, I'm going to move on to the last movie for April's theme, which is, is this really happening? But the first movie for May's theme, which is basically happy birthday, Linnea Quigley. It's your appreciation month on the shows with 1988's Night of the Demons, directed by Kevin Tenney, starring Amelia Kincaid as Angela, Linnea Quigley as Suzanne, Kathy Podwell as Judy. Hal Havens as Stooge, Allison Barron as Helen, Alvin Alexis as Roger, Billy Gallo as Sal, Lance Fenton as Jay, Jill um, Tarashita as Franny, sorry if I butchered that, and Philip Tanzini as Max. So for horror history, I definitely would say this movie focuses on the whole AIDS epidemic, um, the whole idea of like, if you don't follow the rules, you'll die. Um, this was a big theme in the 80s, and um, later I'm going to go on and dive more into this. But I definitely think it does reflect on the AIDS crisis or the AIDS epidemic that was going on in the 80s, and a lot of horror movies reflected on this. Um, also, I would say adolescent budding sexuality. Um, you know, some are more sexual than others. This is a movie about teenagers having a party on Halloween. Um, so I definitely think it talks a little bit about, like I said, the whole, you know, adolescent budding sexualities when you're trying to figure out who you are. Some people are more experienced than others. Some people hold on to their virginity. Some people like to have sex. And I think it definitely touches a little on that. And I would definitely say slightly um, reflects on like the whole idea of body image, how people kind of view themselves, especially with the character of Suzanne. She's always looking in the mirror and she's always worried about how she looks. So that definitely reflects on teenagers and their whole um, body image issues that they go through because it is something a lot of teenagers go through. For psychology and mental health, I'm going to say this movie definitely touches on fight or flight, narcissistic personality disorder, hallucinations, female sexuality, fear of sexuality, distorted body image, and metaphors and symbolism demonic possession can represent. So what is this movie about? Angela, the high school quiet outcast, wants to throw the Halloween party of the year at the well-known, supposedly haunted Hull House, inviting all the cool kids to prove she's not just some quiet girl in class, but to help break her out of her shell a little bit. But when the party guests decide to have a seance using a creepy mirror they found in the house, all hell starts to break loose, and the teens are slowly picked off one by one, being possessed by the demons who inhabit Hull House. Will any of them survive the night of terror? Or will all of them succumb to the horrors of Hull House? Moving on to the subgenre. Since this movie does deal with demons, I mean, it's literally in the title, Night of the Demons, I would put this movie in the possession horror subgenre. This is a movie where the characters are slowly being possessed by the demons that inhabit this house. 
They're being, again, picked off one by one and turned into demons. So for me, this movie falls under possession horror. Over, I'd say, supernatural horror, because some people could look at this as a supernatural horror subgenre. Um, but I think the difference for me between supernatural horror and possession horror is that possession horror deals with demons. Supernatural horror tends to deal more with um, ghosts and spirits. You know, the demons are haunting this house, but they're not souls of people who once were um, or ghosts. They're clearly demons. So that's why, like I said, I wouldn't consider this one a supernatural horror. I would definitely put it under possession horror. So like I said, that's kind of the difference is that, yes, this is a haunting in the house, but it's haunted by demons who are possessing people rather than like ghosts and spirits that are just haunting and inhabit the house. So let me go over the definition of possession horror. Possession horror. This subgenre may include the devil, demons, or spirits that inhabit or possess objects such as dolls or mirrors, people, or a divot box. These films involve a person or an object possessed that needs an exorcism for people or to be cleansed for objects. Many of these films have religious undertones since the devil, demons, and exorcisms are part of many religions. These films may also be a metaphor for someone dealing with one's own demons or some struggling to cleanse themselves of their burden or whatever may be weighing them down mentally and emotionally. Okay, so the first thing I'd like to talk a little bit about is like why I say this movie ties in with April's theme of is this really happening? Because a lot of people look at this movie and wouldn't think that it blurs the lines between reality and fantasy. But I think it does. I think it does blur the lines between reality and fantasy. So are these demons really possessing the teens at this party? Or did Angela, like so desperately wanting to impress the cool kids, spike the punch? Um, sending everyone into like a drug-induced fever dream filled with hallucinations. You know, the demons, the idea of the demons being brought on by the seance they performed, if I hope that makes sense. So basically what I'm saying is, on the one hand, yes, the demons are real. They are possessing the teens. They do inhabit the house. But on the other hand, you know, Angela wants to impress the cool kids, so she spikes the punch with drugs, and they're all kind of in this, like, shared psychosis, everyone hallucinating the demons because of the seance they had just performed. So, so again, this movie, is it real? Is it really happening? Or is it a fantasy? You know, this movie can be seen as reality. The seance the teens performed woke up the demons residing within Hull House, making it so they could possess them, especially since it is Halloween. Or... We can see it as a teenage girl, Angela, who seems to be the school's outcast, and she's really quiet, like they even say she's the weird girl, you know, wanting to throw the best Halloween party for the cool kids, and again, decides to spike the punch with drugs. So once ingested, they all start to have, again, like I said, a shared psychosis of sorts, and they all start to hallucinate these demons possessing one another, um, Again, being brought on by the seance that they performed. So if they didn't perform the seance, they wouldn't have hallucinated the demons kind of way. So that's just a little bit. Like, there's really not much more to say as how it blurs the lines between reality and fantasy. It does, for me, as I'm watching it, I do see it as a movie that does do that, though. It can be seen as a movie that is really happening. There are demons possessing these teenagers. Or it can be seen as everyone's in a fantasy everyone's hallucinating these demons possessing each other because they're all 
in a drug-induced shared psychosis kind of thing. So I do believe this movie can fall into both. It can be seen as both. I personally um, do see it as the demons are real. The demons do inhabit Hull House. And yes, they are possessing the teens. But as you're watching it, you can see it as both is basically what I'm trying to say. So I hope that makes sense. So either way, though, even going off that topic of is it real, is it not? Demonic possession in general within a movie can be seen as a metaphor for many things. So one thing that it can be seen as is um, a metaphor or reflecting on, like I said earlier, the AIDS epidemic. This is a big theme that happened in the 80s. So let me quickly read um, a section of my essay that I wrote, because I wrote an essay all about how horror movies like reflect and mimic society's fears of the decade they were made in. So let me read a little bit from the 1980s section that actually talks about the AIDS epidemic, and then I'll talk a little bit more. The 1980s brought you such horror icons as Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger, and Michael Myers. This is the decade that saw the rise of the slasher flick subgenre, and the message in these movies were in direct correlation with the anxieties of society, the AIDS crisis. The AIDS crisis came around, and with a very clear message of, you drink, do drugs, or have sex, you die. Monument, 2009. And this scared many people because anyone could have it and you didn't know who you could trust. People were basically being told that if you drink alcohol, use drugs, party, and have sex, you were going to catch AIDS and die. And this was a heavy theme in the 1980s slasher phase, along with the idea that you couldn't trust anyone and anyone could be infected. The anxieties of the AIDS crisis not only helped spawn the slasher subgenre by scaring people from partying and having sex, the crisis also spawned Movies about paranoia because anyone could have this illness, spread it to anyone, and therefore you could not fully trust anyone. Okay, so reflecting on this idea that I just read, the demon possession is passed from one person to another. Suzanne even passes it to Angela through a kiss. And it is basically the teens who were engaging in the drinking, smoking, and having sex were the ones who became possessed by the demons. And like I said, many movies in the 80s reflected on the AIDS crisis. They were showing, basically showing the fears of society at the time and that these were the fears society faced. Anyone could have it. You didn't know who you could trust and it could easily be passed if you weren't a quote, good boy or girl. When in actuality, AIDS doesn't discriminate. It can be passed to anyone through sex, um, drugs, typically needles even to children from their mothers, you know, through birth. But these movies reflected on the message that was being told to society, that society was being fed this idea that you drink, do drugs, party, have sex, you'll get AIDS and you'll die. Which is why many victims in horror movies, especially during the 80s, you know, and especially in the slasher flicks, were the ones who were drinking, doing drugs, um, partying, and having sex. So. I definitely think that demonic possession in general, especially in this movie, because it was made in 1988, definitely reflects on that whole idea of the AIDS crisis. And like I said, the fears of society, the whole idea of, you know, anyone could have this. You didn't know he could trust. People could become infected. And society was being, their fears are being fed by, you know, being told that, you know, you do these things, you're going to die of AIDS. So in these movies, it is the victims are typically the ones who are doing what they're, quote, not supposed to do. And they're the ones who get killed. And like I said, like I read from my essay, this was 
a fear that society was being fed, especially during the 80s. So I hope that makes sense. Moving on, um, another thing that demonic possession can also be a metaphor for is addiction. So when using, people change, you know, they're, quote, not who they once were, or they often hear, I don't even know you anymore. So when dealing with addiction, people change both physically and mentally, as well as having changes in their behavior. Just like our characters in this movie, you know, they go through these changes when they're possessed by the demons. They change physically, especially in the face. Like, it's very noticeable in their faces that they have physically changed. They change mentally, not thinking like they used to and having completely different thought patterns. And their behavior changes. They become more aggressive and more violent. This possession is also being passed from one person to another, maybe kind of reflecting on like the whole idea of peer pressure that teens typically experience is, oh, we're doing it, so you should do it kind of idea because it is being passed by from teen to teen to teen. And once a person is possessed by the demon or, you know, demonic possession, they change. And I think this reflects on the change or can be seen as a metaphor for the change that one goes through when battling addiction. So like I said, when battling addiction, when someone's using, they do change physically, mentally, as well as their behaviors. And same thing happens with our characters when they're possessed by demons, they change physically, mentally, and their behaviors change as well. Another thing that demonic possession can reflect on is disease, especially cancer, and mental illness, and the changes that one goes through mentally, physically, and their behavioral changes as well. And disease and mental illness causes these same changes in people. You know, when my mother was dying from cancer, the physical changes were the most noticeable. It really is. like It's hard to say, but anyone who's watched someone die of cancer will completely understand when I say they basically waste away to nothing and they basically become a shell of a person. That's what you watch happen to someone from cancer it physically is just slowly wasting away. Um, but my mother also started to change mentally and in her behaviors. So by the end, like during the last week she was alive, I didn't even recognize the person in front of me anymore. I remember I kept thinking, this can't be my mother. This is not the woman who raised me. This isn't my mother I'm looking at. But it was. It's just that the cancer, this disease, took over her, quote, possessed her, and changed her mentally and physically, as well as changing her behavior. Definitely for me, like I say, demonic possession within a movie can reflect on disease, and the same changes one goes through during demonic possession are the same changes one goes through when battling a disease, especially cancer. I saw it within my own mother. And the same thing can be said about mental illness. Many people battling mental illness um, can go through similar changes. I myself battled depression, anxiety, and BDD, which is body dysmorphic disorder. And mental illness, what people don't understand is that mental illness, it doesn't just affect someone neurologically. It doesn't just affect them mentally or in their mental state. It affects them mentally, physically, as well as changes their behaviors at times. Same as addiction and disease, basically. Mental illness affects a person as a whole. Again, demonic possession can be a metaphor for someone battling mental illness. For myself, every mental illness I battle affects me pretty much all around. Same thing. It can affect me mentally, physically, and behaviorally. I'll fall into such a depressive low that all I do is cry and basically give up 
and I just keep thinking that there's no light at the end of the tunnel. And all I do is barely make it through the day. And, you know, I just basically, I'm just moving on through the day. I go to bed where my dreams tend to be better than reality. And I wake up and I do it all over again when I'm in these very depressive lows. It's like I can barely push through the day and then I have to wake up and do it all over again. And it's not fun and it, and it sucks, to be quite honest. With my anxiety, it gives me actual panic attacks and paranoia. I'll start to think people are out to get me and that they're talking behind my back, trying to sabotage my life. And that's my paranoia side. But with my panic attacks, it it's really a very physical um, change in me. It's like my heart races. My hands will start to shake. I have trembles in my legs, like leg trembles. My head will kind of start to bob uncontrollably and I can barely breathe. Like I'm gasping for air. So that that's one with my panic attacks. It definitely affects me very much physically. And then with my BDD, it's basically I can't look at myself in the mirror without crying and hating what I see. I have a very distorted view of myself. You know, I can never see anything in the mirror but a fat, ugly person. I'll stop going out for fear of people picking on me. And I'll constantly look down when walking by anyone because I don't want to make eye contact with them because I don't want them to look at my face to the point that my neck will hurt. Like I constantly have my head down. My neck will hurt. I only wear dark clothes and dark colors because I am trying so hard to hide my fat. So mental illness affects people all around. Again, not just mentally, like people think that mental illness is only something neurological. It's only something that affects you mentally. It affects you physically and changes your behavior as well, as I gave examples just now, the things I battle. So again, demonic possession does the same in these movies and can reflect on the physical, mental, and behavioral changes one goes through when battling mental illness or disease. So I definitely think this movie um, reflects on that as well with the demonic possession is that it can be a metaphor for disease or mental illness and the changes that one goes through all around mentally, physically, behaviorally, they change that way through demonic possession, but also people who are suffering from mental illness and are battling disease go through the same changes as well. So demonic possession can be a metaphor and be symbolic of the AIDS crisis, addiction, disease, and mental illness. Basically anything that causes a physical, mental, and behavioral change in a person, because that's what happens in these movies. You know, when someone becomes possessed by a demon, they change. They are no longer who they were. They're, com they're someone completely different. You know, they change mentally, physically, and behaviorally. So again, it just, I keep repeating myself and I apologize for that. But in short, demonic possession is a metaphor for all these different things. Because when a person gets possessed in these movies, they change physically, mentally, and behaviorally, which reflects on the idea that when someone is battling, like I said, disease or mental illness or addiction, they too change mentally, physically, and behaviorally as well. So I hope that all makes sense. Anyways, moving on. The next thing I'd like to talk a little bit about is this movie as a whole, um, like kind of as a whole, what it also could be representing. Like when I covered Stuart Gordon's Dolls, I mentioned that it was this like whimsical horror movie fairy tale and how some characters represented characters within certain fairy tales. Same thing goes with Night of the Demons. I feel like this movie is almost a horror movie version of Alice in Wonderland. Things aren't what they seem. 
The whole movie feels like a hallucination or a drug-induced dream. Um, Judy, or Alice, just wants to leave this place and go home. And everyone in this movie are either out to get her or not helpful at all. So first, I'd like to go over like who each character in our movie would represent from Alice in Wonderland and why I think this. And just remember that this is just my interpretations. I like to dig deep into these movies and see what's below the surface. This movie may have nothing to do with Alice in Wonderland, but as I was watching it, that's what I saw, that this movie could be a sort of horror movie version of Alice in Wonderland. So our Alice is the character Judy. Not only is she dressed as Alice in the movie, but she's also our protagonist. We are watching her story fold out, wondering if she'll make it out alive and if she actually will be able to make it home, such as Alice in Alice in Wonderland. All she's trying to do is get out of Wonderland and go home. All Judy's trying to do is get out of Hull House and go home. Next, I would say the white rabbit would be Jay. Not only is he wearing a white jacket, but he's the one who brings Judy to the party. Just as Alice followed the white rabbit down the rabbit hole to Wonderland, Judy followed Jay to Angela's party at Hull House. So I would definitely say that Jay represents uh, the white rabbit. The queen of hearts would definitely be Angela. She wears a black dress and kind of seems to be like the main demon, like this truly evil person. She's the one doing a fair amount of the killing and turning others into demons. You know, she may not be saying off with their heads as the Queen of Hearts does, but she is the one killing a lot of the people in the movie. So I definitely would say Angela um, represents the Queen of Hearts, not only in like her, the way she dressed and her costume, but also the fact that, like I said, she is kind of in the hierarchy of demons, probably in the top tier in this movie. She seems to be the main demon. Just as in a hierarchy in Wonderland, the Queen of Hearts is, you know, up in the higher tier. Our eccentric little treasure cat would definitely be Suzanne, in my opinion. Suzanne is, you know, outgoing, a little crazy, but in a good way. All smiles. She's, this, you know, a cute little party girl. Suzanne, like the treasure cat, is slightly mischievous and a little unpredictable. You know, the treasure cat in the Disney animated version uh, was pink and purple. In colors. And while Suzanne doesn't wear purple, she does have a cute little pink dress on that may um, be a little symbolic of the colors of the treasure cat. So I definitely think Suzanne, by her personality, the fact she's wearing pink, like I said, she's a little crazy, you know, she's fun, she's the party girl. She's a little, like I said, a little mischievous and unpredictable, such as the treasure cat is in Alice in Wonderland. Next, I would say the caterpillar would be Sal. Sal, for a good portion of the movie, is seen smoking, kind of like the caterpillar smokes a hookah in Alice in Wonderland. Plus, he's dressed in blue denim and tends to be, like I said, quiet most of the time. And when he does speak, he's kind of sarcastic. But at the same time, he knows his shit and he isn't easily fooled by others. So he definitely has, and he does kind of put himself on this pedestal. Like he kind of puts himself up there as very important. But he sits back, is quiet, smoking a lot through the movie. And when he does talk, it's very sarcastic in ways. Um, so I'd definitely say he would be the caterpillar. Now, I will admit that the others were a little harder to place. And yes, I'm probably reading more into it than I need to. But if I found a connection between Alice in Wonderland with some of these characters, then the rest of them must have some kind of connection as well, is kind of what I was thinking. So I would say that... 
the characters of Helen and Stooge are Tweedledee and Tweedledum. They both are dressed in similar colors. Um, they aren't the brightest crayons in the box, and they do arrive at the party together. They both, um, due to not thinking anything through, are kind of quick to be killed and turn into demons. So, like I said, Helen and Stooge are Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Like I said, they are dressed similar. They do arrive to the party together. They're not really very, you know, they're not portrayed as smart characters, which is why I think they're quickly killed off. So I would definitely put Helen and Stooge as Tweedledee and Tweedledum. The characters of Franny and Max, I would say, are the Mad Hatter and the March Hare. They're both very silly and they're always together. They're kind of like the life of the party and they do enjoy a good party. And like I said, they're always together. They're very fun characters to be around. So I would definitely say they're the Mad Hatter and the March Hare because the March Hare and the Mad Hatter are kind of silly, a little eccentric, and they're always together throwing this tea party while Max and Franny are always together wanting to have a good time. Last is Roger. And he was a little harder to place. Like, I couldn't really figure out who he would be. Um, so I was kind of thinking, I was like, maybe he's the Dormouse because the Dormouse does at one point freak out and run off, which Roger is the one, only one who tries to really escape in the movie. He's like, I'm, you know, getting the hell out of here. So as I started thinking about it a little more, I would probably say he's more of Dinah, which is Alice's cat. He's quick, again, he's quick to escape the situation as a cat would be. He's quick on his toes. Um, he's not afraid of using dangerous objects to, like, climb on. Like, cats are known to climb on anything and have this great balance. And Roger actually, like, climbs up use a wall using a barbed wire fence, cutting his hands. And in the end, he does survive the night with Alice. And Alice and Alice in Wonderland is um, reunited with her cat Dinah in the end. So it is her and Dinah. Um, Judy and Roger. So like I said, I would definitely place Roger as Dinah the cat because of, you know, all these different things I just mentioned. You know, he's quick to escape the situation, quick on his toes and not afraid to climb anything that can be dangerous or potentially dangerous. So while I was actually researching Alice in Wonderland characters and moving into like the psychology of Alice in Wonderland, I found two very interesting syndromes. Alice in Wonderland syndrome and Mad Hatter Syndrome. So I'm just going to quickly go over the definitions of these because I just found them very fascinating. Alice in Wonderland Syndrome. A rare neurological disorder. It causes changes in visual perception, body image, and experience of time. That's from Healthline. Mad Hatter Syndrome. A form of chronic mercury poisoning. Depending on the level of exposure, it can cause symptoms like vomiting, skin rashes, tremors, twitching, and excitability. The condition is called this because it commonly affected hat makers in the 18th to 20th century. That also was Healthline. And of course, sorry. So I just thought those two syndromes were pretty interesting. And since I do love to research and I do love to dive deep into these things and I love to like actually like really try to find more psychology within things. And I was really looking more into like the characters of Alice in Wonderland, the idea of each character can actually represent a melted, uh, sorry, can actually represent a mental illness actually popped up in my research. So, of course, I had to read this and I had to read these articles and websites. And, you know, does it apply to our movie? Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. But I just thought it'd be fun to kind of go over some of this. So Alice would represent for a mental illness would be an eating disorder. She's eating throughout the novel and movie, which changes her perception of herself becoming bigger or smaller. The white rabbit 
represents generalized anxiety disorder. He's constantly worried about being late, causing him to become very anxious and seem as if he's having panic attacks at times. The Cheshire Cat would represent schizophrenia. He has the ability to distort reality around him appearing and disappearing at will. The Queen of Hearts represents narcissistic personality disorder. She thinks highly of herself, the world revolves around her, she's very self-absorbed, and lacks any empathy for others. The Caterpillar, and I hope I say this right, represents uh, Grandjoy's delusional disorder. An inflated sense of worth, um, believe themselves to be more important than they are, criticizing others, quick to anger, and not caring how your behaviors affect others. The Mad Hatter represents bipolar disorder. He constantly flips between one end to the other. He gets mad quickly, yet at times seems to be in a manic episode, switching quickly to being upset. So he kind of bounces back and forth between being frustrated, getting mad, or being in this like manic phase of, haha, I'm having a good time or having this tea party. So he represents bipolar disorder. And then Tweedledee and Tweedledum uh, represent dependent personality disorder. They're completely dependent on one, um, on one another. They both depend on the other to take care of them and are very clingy with one another. So there are just a few interesting aspects I found. Again, it was very fascinating to find that there is in actuality like an Alice in Wonderland syndrome along with a Mad Hatter syndrome. And then again, I found it very fascinating that each character in Alice in Wonderland can represent a different form of mental illness. So again, this is why I love diving deep into these movies and finding these different things. So I definitely think this movie represents a horror movie version of Alice in Wonderland, which then turned into me finding out the characters, which then made me find these syndromes, which then uh, made me find that Alice in Wonderland characters can represent a mental illness. And for myself, I just, I guess for myself, I found it interesting to see that this movie for me, I, I saw it as a horror movie version of Alice in Wonderland. So, like I said, as I was, and it started with Judy being dressed as Alice and then trying to get out of Hull House. That's where my whole idea of um, this being a horror movie version of Alice in Wonderland started. You know, many characters in this movie can represent a character from Alice in Wonderland, but there's a twist. People are dying and being turned into something horrible. Many of the characters in Night of the Demons share similar characteristics with characters in Alice in Wonderland. And for me, that makes Night of the Demons so much more fun to watch. If you really pay attention, you can see who each person represents within Alice in Wonderland. So again, this movie probably has nothing to do with Alice in Wonderland. I'm probably just reading more into it. But like I said, it started with Judy being Alice, trying to get out of Hull House, which made me think of Alice from Alice in Wonderland, trying to get out of Wonderland. And then I started picking up on these different aspects that each person started to represent a character from Alice in Wonderland. So it's just things like this that I enjoy doing for this podcast. And it's just fun for me to dive deep and, like I say, peel back the layers within these movies. Probably has nothing to do with the movie. The movie probably has nothing to do with Alice in Wonderland. But for me, these are my interpretations. These are things I see within the movie. And for me, it was very fun to see this movie as a horror movie version of Alice in Wonderland. So I'm going to move on to my reviews. Cryptic Rock says, A staple in horror movie history, Night of the Demons continues to draw in new fans to what lurks within the dust jacket of its horror video releasing. While this movie had been in theaters from September 1988 to June 1989, it grossed just over an estimated $3 million, doubling its estimated budget. That is quite a neat feat for an indie horror film. 
So remember, if anyone is invited to a Halloween party, be sure to steer clear of any abandoned funeral homes, Ouija boards, and party hosts that go by the names of Angela and Suzanne, for it may be the last party anyone will ever attend. Oh, the horror, says, The wonderful accomplishment of this darkly comedic possession slasher is that it can take itself seriously while still boasting some laughs and immaturity for the hell of it. The power of Night of the Demons is that it can romp around like a kid with its nudity and lame, though sometimes hysterical, one-liners, but remain drenched in its sinister aroma. Almost like the later Freddy Krueger character forms from the late 80s to early 90s, the demons spout some deathly offbeat quotes that make up for it with their horrific makeup and cruel intentions. So overall, this movie is a campy and fun, yet creepy 80s horror movie that has a lot more going on beneath the surface once you peel back the layers. This movie does make you ask the question, is this really happening? Is this reality or fantasy? Are the teens really dealing with demonic possession? Or are they all hallucinating in some sort of drug-induced shared psychosis? For myself, I love how this movie can be seen as a horror movie Alice in Wonderland, the rabbit hole in Wonderland being the creepy hull house, where each character in our movie represents one in Alice in Wonderland, where our Alice is trying to escape the dangers of, quote, Wonderland, hull house, where all the characters are being possessed and trying to kill her when all she wants to do is go home. Linnea Quigley as Suzanne and Amelia Kincaid as Angela totally steal the show and are amazingly creepy in their portrayal as demonically possessed teens. I actually met both of them last year at the Jamboree and they're both so sweet and like really easy to talk to once I actually had the courage to talk to them. So if you haven't seen this movie, you need to. It's a staple in the horror genre a wonderful cult classic from the 80s. This movie will make you laugh while creeping you out at the same time. So I'm going to wrap it up for today. Thank you for joining me here on Sinful Sarah's Horror Menagerie. Again, I'm your host, Sarah Sin. Thank you for sticking around as I discuss horror history, psychology, and mental health within horror movies. Hope you enjoyed the show. Again, thank you for listening. And I just want to remind everybody that there's a horror movie out there for everyone to enjoy. So thank you.